From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Super School Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Danda, although my guest refuses to use that word because he knew me as my proper name. And now he refuses to call me Paddy, but that's okay. I'll forgive him. So on this particular show, I'm going way back to when I was a young lad, which is only a few years ago. And I met this guest as a young graduate, even undergraduate, actually. And we worked together and we shared some adventures along the way, but now he's gone on to do phenomenal things. And I thought it'd be a good time to catch up and see where he's at with his journey. So, Phil Black, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paddy. Proddy man, isn't it? That's what I know him as. And he's a great man. Oh, I almost called you Philip for a moment. Then I thought... It's okay. People call me worse. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the episode's just started, so we'll see where we get to. Yeah. But uh, Phil, it's such a pleasure to talk with you again. I know we exchange messages every now and again, but we rarely get the chance to talk properly like this. So I'd like to take you back in time a little bit and uh, talk about your journey of how you got into what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we started out, we were, you know, as you say, undergraduate students, on our placement years from university at BT, you know, and then we both came back as graduates and, and I then spent, what, eight years at BT? Everything to do with IT delivery. I got to do one of those jobs where I got to follow the CEO around for carrying his bags and, and helping him out doing strategy and, and then, you know, IT director. And that was all good fun and exciting stuff. And then and then I left back in 2008 because I didn't really want to become a lifer at BT. I wanted to experience, you know, a much broader world. And I became a chief operating officer for, at the time, a small agile consulting company called X Software. And then we merged that uh, company with a, with, a, with a firm called Emergent. And then for 11 years, I ran Emergent as the COO. I was responsible for all of our service delivery, our product management, our marketing. There were moments where I ran sales. I'm, you know, I'm not a sales person and I got to do some really wonderful things. So when we worked together, we were going through a big agile transformation in BT, right? And as an IT director, I had to implement those things myself and we had some support doing it. So from coaches and, and the like, some training. And then I got to do that across the world. And so I probably served more than 150 different companies, like uh, all across America, the UK, Europe. And by the end of when I left Emergent back in 2019, when I started, we were about eight people. When I left, we were much closer to 800 people. So, you know, I'd navigated quite a lot of growth, a lot of change. We'd created a brand new product called VFQ at the time, which was, um, which was great. 
I was involved with the British Computer Society and we launched the Agile Practitioner Certification. I got to sit with Walmart executives as they tried to navigate their battle against Amazon and their, you know, their transformation to more digital ways of working. I got to work in the UK government, you know, implementing Agile and digital product management and all of those sorts of good things. Yeah. And it was just, it was such a, it was a rich experience, 20 different industries, and yeah, I was really thankful, but I was also very tired because I used to travel on an airplane every week somewhere and I was always in a different bed and a different time zone, you know, and then there, there comes a time where you just think, just slow down and come spend some time with the family, come back home. And, and so back in 2019, just before, maybe six months before the pandemic kicked in, I'd been thinking about all of my experiences, coaching, learning, educating, transforming, changing, delivering. And uh, I decided that I was going to embark upon a new adventure, but to start off with focused on teenagers and it's all about learning. So for me, everything that I've experienced in my career has actually been because I was able to learn and learn fast and adapt fast. And, uh, and as I was working with all of these enterprises and, you know, tens of thousands of people, I realized that actually learning wasn't necessarily something that people were really good at. And for me, it's the core skill of the future. It is, it is the thing that will allow us to evolve and, and adapt regardless of what comes next. So Phil, no, thanks for that. It sounds like you've had a really interesting journey. And I know when you and I were working at BT, they were probably one of the first major blue chip organizations to follow agile ways of working so early on and mm. i remember those days where we were told this new cio who'd come in was going to change the way we worked but i actually remember a, a genius move on his part because he pretty much said i want you to change your release cycles from yearly releases down to every 90 days mm -hmm. and it was almost like you guys now decide how you want to deliver Mm -hmm. Apart from some of the folks in the organization that had cottoned onto Agile, there wasn't any real prescriptive approach that was imposed mm -hmm. upon us, but many of us naturally levitated towards this new Agile way. Mm -hmm. And I think that was around 2004. I started working for him in 2005. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, got to, I got to see it up front and close up. Yeah. Fantastic. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how did that all come about? And, you know, what were some of those early challenges and how, how did you do it? Yeah, no, it is a fascinating thing. Cause I, like, I thought it was, uh, it's quite an amazing story and actually maybe some of my philosophies of change and how I think about agile still is rooted very much back in those days and the strategies that we took then. So like prior to Al Noor coming in, I had been involved in a, a couple of really major projects where we were playing around with extreme programming. And that was kind of my first foray into, into agile ways of working. And I do remember the moment where Alnor came and he said, 90 day cycles, everything's going to be done on 90 day cycles. And he also did a, we're going to go from 4,000 projects to, I can't remember how many programs, but he wanted to really simplify and break down the program so we were more focused and faster and i just remember the resistance at 
all of these, you know, director levels and they're like, you know, he clearly doesn't understand the way we work. He clearly doesn't understand the complexity of telecoms. He clearly doesn't understand, you know, how we do things around here. And, but what, what, what was great about him is he was like, nope, we are moving to a 90 day cycle. Now, how that manifested itself for so many people was, well, we'll do a 90 day cycle on requirements and then we'll do a 90 day cycle on design and then we'll do a 90 day cycle on development and then we'll do one on test. And so in some ways, everyone just kind of kept everything as it was. And then, you know, everything still took a year. And <laughs> I just thought it was really funny how they took the message and then, and then, and then just kept doing everything they already, already did. But, you know, Alnor would not let that one slide. So he kept, he kept bringing in slightly different tweaks to the rules. I don't know if you remember hot housing, you know, three days events that was meant to be with senior people in the room, real customers in the room. And what you agreed in your three day hot house would then you would have to deliver 90 days later. And actually, when I started working for Alnor, I ended up having to run and be the custodian of those rules. So every director, every, you know, senior person would have to come to me and say, Phil, here's the checklist that has been set out for a 90 day cycle. This is what we did in our hot house. And then they'll say to me, but I couldn't have a customer in the room. And I'd be like, why not? Cause I know Arnold will ask, why not? And they'll be like, well, we don't own the customer relationship. And it was like, okay, that's not really a good excuse. So like, who is the user? How do we get them in the room? And then they'll say, we can't deliver this in 90 days. And it was like, okay, why not? <laughs> why don't we shrink what we're trying to do and get faster feedback? And it was amazing the lengths that people would go to, to try and get out of the rules. And so I think what, what you said there is like, there was no doctrine. It wasn't do scrum. It wasn't do XP uh, like, and safe didn't exist back then. Less didn't exist back then, you know, pick any other flavor. DSDM was actually probably more used back in the day, but or RUP. I don't know if you remember that, yep. but you know, people, people were trying to figure out, well, what does all of this mean? And then once I left working directly for Alnor, I then became one of the IT directors looking after platforms. And I, I was in, got involved in what was known as the 21st century network, 21CN. And we were trying to launch a brand new network with brand new products, brand new services into the UK to try and create a brand new all IP network. So this was the precursor for fiber that we now have everywhere and ADSL products and ethernet products and all of this good stuff. And, and then, so then I got to actually not just police what everyone else was doing. I got to get involved. And when we first looked at the life cycle of a release in 21CN, we actually still realized that it was taking more than a year from an idea to market. And so there was a group of IT directors that all got together. And then we got the stakeholders from the other, from the lines of business. We got strategy involved, operations involved, customer experience involved. And then what we did is we actually said, right, how do we take that, you know, I think it was something like 360 days and how do we really make it 90 days? So we absolutely tore up the rule book and we tried to do what Alnor had always wanted to be done, 
even on a program of 4,000 people at the time with brand new hardware, brand new products, brand new customers, brand new services. And it was all to try and really shrink and create this feedback loop. And we did it. So after a couple of cycles, we got it down to 90 days from requirement to production. And then actually the next release, we got it down to six weeks. So we'd taken this behemoth, you know, it, it was billions of pounds of development spend and we were getting it down to every six weeks, you know, and some maybe agile purists would still say that's not very agile, but for the situation that we found ourselves in, it was remarkable. We, we could launch new features really quickly and customers were always involved. And I think, you know, that's a mark of a good agile team is actually when they have the customer truly there and you can see the whites of their eyes and what they need and you're working in collaboration with them. Oh, that's phenomenal, Phil. And I'll delve into that a little bit more in a moment, but you'd mentioned hot houses there. And I, I just remember they, we used to have great chocolate during <laughs> hot houses. It was almost these Two or three days of us being locked in a building. Pastries, fruits, chocolate. Yeah, totally. Everything you could possibly think of. And there used to be prizes. So could you just break down what a hothouse is for anyone who's never been involved in one? And what's the modern equivalent? Because I don't hear the word hothouse being mentioned much now. What's interesting is, so they they would have started appearing back in, what, 2006, 2007, I reckon? And then back in 2018, so 11 years later, I actually ran something very similar for Walmart over in Arkansas. They were called greenhouses then. They didn't like the term hothouses, and that's fine. It, you know, it, and, and actually, we did soften some of the rules that people really hated. But I suppose today, the, the closest equivalent is a design sprint. You know, so design sprints are five days. It is about exploration and, you know, really trying to understand the user, the, you know, bit of design thinking in there, bit of prototyping, trying to figure out how to get fast feedback. And so a design sprint today is probably what a hothouse was. Well, it is what a hothouse was, but hothouse was tried to be in three days. And as you say, it was competitive. The whole idea was there were multiple teams trying to work on similar or adjacent problems. So back in Toyota, they used to have this idea of set-based engineering so that, you know, one person would try and do the best solution. One would try and do the fastest. One would try and do the cheapest. One would try and do the most efficient. And then they would learn from each of those models to then see what will the final solution look like. So that was the reason why there were multiple competing teams. It didn't always work out like that because everyone just got super competitive. But what the idea was, was try to generate as many ideas to solve the problem that was at hand as quickly as possible. So day one was, you know, customer problem, like some business exec would say, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. You then do an auction to pull together a team. So again, they were trying to get cross-functional teams, but also not people who always work together. So they were trying to create an environment which encouraged creativity. So then day one was just trying to understand the problem, sketch out a solution as quickly as possible. At the end of every day, you would pitch back, here's how I'm thinking about it. Here's what we're doing. And so, you know, it's competitive, but we also wanted to maximize the learning every day. So then all the teams would learn about all all the other teams were doing and they would go on quite late, but 
the hope was that overnight everyone was still you know chewing over what they've learned today so then when they come back on day two it was like full steam ahead you know do i have to beg borrow and steal from another team shall we collaborate are we still competing and again you go through the whole day you would get feedback from the customer in the room you go like are we on the right lines does this make sense does that make sense and then you would pitch back at the end of day two and then day three is all about getting to your final here's how we're thinking about the solution this is our design this is our implementation and then the business person who had the problem and the customer would then be part of a judging panel to say, that's the answer I want to go for, or I like these two, let's keep exploring them. Now, let's do a 90-day cycle from one of those and see what we can deliver. So it was all about shortening the feedback loop. Oh, fantastic. And then you'd have a winner at the end who would win at the time. I can't even remember. Was iPods. iPods. Back in the day, iPods. Yeah. <laughs> Lego kits. I don't know. We were we were a bit of Lego obsessed back then. Yeah, I just remember I used to get really excited whenever someone used to invite me to a hot house because of the chance of winning something. Forget all the hard work you've got to put in. It was like exactly. oh, in with the chance. Might I, just win. Might just used to it used to be funny watching people walk out of a hot house on the end of day three and they're like zombies. <laughs> really brutal. But they might have an iPod in their hand, so yeah, they were happy. There we go. We're all happy then. So hot houses absolutely amazing and i think at the time they were revolutionary because we'd never done anything like that before i mean you know let's just put this into context bt were government owned they used to be part of the post office and then they became privatized and this was a time of huge change in the organization so mm. you know bringing something like hot housing and, and let me just put that into context even further i remember when you and i joined we, we were still quite young then and there were people around us who'd worked there a lot longer than we had even been alive. Yeah. And you just have to glance at their desk and it was like a shrine of photos of all of their family members. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, when this agile way of working came about, we were told we have to hot desk and our desks are no longer our own. And mm -hmm. people were distraught. Mm -hmm. It was almost like we've taken the shrine away. And talk about culture shift, never mind ways of working, but to give up your desk was like a huge deal for many people. Yeah. Yeah. And actually where you sat in the office was about, it's a status symbol. It's like you had tenure, so you had the best desk. And then, yeah, like so many people were being asked to just, you know, show up in these collaborative working areas, which were connected technologically to offshore teams as well. So, cause we were trying to create these centers that was focused on customer experience i don't know if you ever got out to india to go to the lead to cash center or the trouble to resolve center and how we got teams across different suppliers working with teams in the uk and across the world all collaborating together with no fixed abode <laughs> it was it was quite interesting yeah no phenomenal times and going back to your example of the 21cn program what were two or three of your biggest challenges as you were going through that? And how did you overcome them? Hi, folks. Sorry for the quick interruption. But before we continue with this awesome episode, I have a huge favor to ask. If you're enjoying these conversations and you're finding it's giving you value in your daily challenges, then I'd be extremely grateful if you could leave a short review and subscribe to whichever platform you're either watching or listening to this episode on. That's it. Let's get back into the episode. 
Yeah. So, so there were, there were definitely people challenges. So just trying to get everyone on the same page, like this is a good idea. This is doable. This is achievable and getting everyone lined up on that idea. You know, I remember working with the operational foe, the people who had to, you know, accept big systems into service, you know, they were like, this is horrendous. Like, this is not how we do things. You know, there's, there's not enough order or control to this. Like we're a telecoms company. You can't just launch stuff into a production environment without, you know, belt and braces. So I'd say that one was, was interesting. I think budgeting cycles, you know, just how the money got allocated, like they were, they were really fun discussions. I say fun fun discussions to try and figure out how the the money got allocated. And then it, we created this process that we called horse trading because one of the biggest challenges was was actually just coordination. I mean, when you've got something like 21CN, which I can't remember how many systems, but you're talking hundreds of systems that have to work together. And then we were launching maybe four or five brand new strategic systems. And I, mine was one of them. Mine was the logical inventory for the network. And then we had a new orchestration system and a new CRM and a new billing system. And so we had these big, big systems. Like when I was doing LIMS, we'd spent 60 million already on this thing and it wasn't even live yet. And I, I inherited that and, you know, had to kind of get that into an agile shape. And so LIMS had reams of requirements and then you might have a little system that had five requirements so you'd be like how much can go in a 90-day cycle was just it was just a planning nightmare so just figuring out like release planning you know safe now exists and you know pis and all of those planning processes and we were trying to invent those back in the day in bt and like trying to come up with a a way that still felt agile, but dealt with the complexity of kind of coordinating hundreds and thousands of people's work. It's easy to say when you've got seven people <laughs> working on a single product, but when you're doing it at that scale and you've also got suppliers going, you know, like Huawei at the time, were trying to create switches for the telephone network that had never existed. So we're trying to do it across global hardware and just technology that had never worked. So it was, you know, it was fun. I remember one of the things when I look back that I, again, thought was a masterstroke, and I, I can't remember at what point we landed with this, but those 90-day cycles weren't just 90-day cycles. They were the release dates for everybody in the organization, right? Yeah. So we yeah. had this common cadence that was given to us to say, these are the dates everybody in the organization needs to deliver. And yeah. all of a sudden that takes away so much of the complexity because yeah. like you mentioned, we have 4,000 projects all running in parallel. Yeah. But one of the hardest things is trying to predict when other teams that you're all dependent on are going to deliver. Yeah. Now all of a sudden we know exactly when they will. The trick then is to make sure that they align with your scope and, and they fit you in into the window you hope they will. But you knew yeah. that they were going to deliver on that date. Yeah. And it was interesting because if you think about it, there were actually, the complexity was we had four lines of business. We had BT wholesale, BT retail, BT global services, and the open reach, the regulatory arm. But then we had platforms underneath each one of them. And for some platforms, they actually had to support more than one line of business. Each business had a different 
customer expectation, customer experiences, customer needs. And the platforms had to try and go figure out the release cycle across all of those different demand sources. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a nightmare. But one challenge comes when everyone's delivering on the same day is that's the day everything can go wrong. So, you know, when you do little and often changes, it actually, it builds up into a much more secure platform. But when you do these big releases, they were, they had become, you know, really like almost too big to fail. And when we first launched 21CN, I actually sat on a 12 day integration call, 12 days it, that we didn't put the phone down for 12 days. And there was two of us, me and a guy called Ashish Gupta. And we basically sat on this call for 12 days, coordinating orders flowing through the system. So all of these things integrated and like, and so they were fairly high risk and as much quality you could try and build in. And again, like the infrastructure we have now with DevOps and continuous integration and continuous deployment, automated testing infrastructure, it's so good today. <laughs> Back in 2007, you know, we were trying to make it all happen. And yeah, it was, it was, it's where my gray hair came from. Fun times. So I think by then I had moved into a different part of the business and thank God was it. <laughs> Wasn't on calls that were 12 days at a time. No, fantastic, Phil. So one thing that I would love to get your thoughts on is where the agile industry is today. Yeah. Because, hey, yeah, believe it or not, you know, you're one of the agile veterans, if you think about it, right? That was, that was you know, during that time where you were part of those early adopters. So... You've seen a lot happen. You've worked for, as you mentioned, Emergen, where you had so many clients. You've seen so much happen in this space. Yeah. What's your perspective on where we are today? And is it a positive place or would you say you're disappointed in what you're seeing? Mm. So it's a great question. And actually, like three years ago when I left Emergen, I... My interest in following all of the trends on LinkedIn and talking about it constantly kind of dissipated a little bit. Like, I mean, over a 20 year period, there's only so many times you can read a, what does a good user story post look like? You know, I used to have a term called the agilista purista, and it's just like this purism, this thing that exists that you know, if you get it right, everything will be fine. And it's just not, it wasn't my experience of, of it. Like you still needed good designers, good, you know, good engineers, the quality needed to be right. The idea needed to be right. Actually, you needed to throw the rule book around every now and then and start from scratch and just following the doctrine. In some ways, I just, I just think it, it leads to not the right result. And I think uh, if we if we go back to the manifesto and we look at continuous improvement, I think we need to get to the point where actually we do allow the autonomy for the people running the work to decide how the work needs to be run. And I just think these heavyweight frameworks like SAFE don't really do anything for the industry. I think they are such a comfort blanket for large enterprises now because they actually don't need to change. You know, it's a bit of tinkering around the edges rather than a a radical, should, do you know, should we just put a customer in the room with the team? Like that just freak, seems to freak people out. And, you know, for the last three years, as I've launched my own new business, I'd actually say it's the most agile 
I've ever been because I am literally prototyping alongside users. And then we turn those into get fast feedback and then move forward. And, you know, we try to do all the disciplines, but then we're really comfortable that we can throw things up and go, actually, let's start from scratch. Let's come up with a new cadence. Let's come up with a new work system. But we are completely in control and and we get to make the choices based on all of the experience we've built up over the years. So in one way, I think the frameworks have been helpful to kind of give people patterns, but they are just, they used as certainty. If we follow this framework, everything will be okay. And I just don't, I don't buy it. And actually the philosophy of VFQ, the product that we created was completely different. It was much more about trying to come up with a measurement system so you could figure out if you're doing the right things rather than like, are you running a stand-up every day? Mm. Or, you know, how frequently are you releasing? Okay, so if then the frequency of release isn't what you want it to be, how might we improve the frequency of release was the question, not how do we run a stand-up every day? And it was just those, it was that, that change in outcome and the experience that people are, are having rather than just follow the rule book. And I just think the rule book's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't think it's necessarily a helpful thing. I did, I did read a really funny post the other day, which was if a scrum team continuously improved and decided that actually some of the ceremonies of scrum, were they doing scrum anymore? And because Scrum actually has a continuous improvement mindset, right? So there was like this existential crisis in this post as to whether they were doing Scrum anymore or not. And my view is, does it matter? Does it matter? So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I love following all that doctrine anymore. Yeah, I just think about the customer, the products and the team's experience, like building cool stuff that people want to use is fun. Yes. Following doctrine for the sake of following it is not. Got it. And in many ways, Phil, I'm probably of a similar mindset in that a lot of what I see in the agile community now, it it's turned into almost like your favorite football team. Yeah. Right. So it's like, I'm going to post my stake in the ground with this framework and that's the thing I'm going to support. Regardless. Yeah. And if I see yeah. anything negative online on social media about that, then I'm going to yeah. defend it. And there seems to be these almost like this, this cult mentality now that I see in the agile community, which is a real shame because if you, if you look at the, the values the principles and everything else, it's, it's completely the opposite. It's about, you know, yeah. people treating people like people. It's about, you know, really yeah. valuing the human element that we bring to the table. I think that's what was golden about the manifesto. It was about, we are discovering new ways of working. So that discovery is such an important point because you get ownership when you discover something that works. And so the, the one word behind VFQ was discovery. That's what we try to do is create tools and frameworks and principles and, and, and philosophies about discovery, discovering what a user needs, discovering how best to build it, discovering how to organize ourselves in the best way to, and, and discovery at, it was at the heart of the original Agile Manifesto. And I think now we have so many rule books, there's nothing to discover. So discovery is gone and, and therefore 
I think your engagement with it has disappeared. That, not yours, but like your people in general, because they don't get to invent anything. And invention's actually where the exciting stuff happens. There you have it, folks. It's the end of another insightful episode. And as always, thank you so much for sticking around to listen to this episode and for helping support me and encouraging me to create more content for you guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you'll find my email address in the show notes or equally head over to the website and click on the contact link. And I promise I will respond to every single message I receive. I'm always looking for your feedback. So if you'd like me to change things up or improve things, I would love your opinions. But more importantly, if there are topics that you would like us to do future episodes on, or there are other great speakers that you are aware of, then please do mention them and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. Thank you once again 